It's episode 85 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Sam Irving. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you're best known... What are you best known for in the world of improv? Uh, I'm probably best known for... Uh, Spontaneous Sherlock's probably the one that we're best known for. Tell me or, about... The... Yeah, or Memories Cooking. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about <laughs> tell both. Tell me about both of them. Yes. Uh, spon- <laughs> one after the other. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you about Memories Coconuts first, because I've been doing that for longer. Um, so that's... Um, we are a group uh, based up in Edinburgh. Uh, we do short form and long form, we, and we've uh, various different long-form shows across the years. So uh, at the moment, what we do is uh, we've got a monthly residency at the Scottish Storytelling Centre called Men With Coconuts and Friends. We'll do uh, three, four short-form games. We'll have a guest of some description, and then we do a 45-minute improvised musical from an audience title suggestion. Wow. Nar- narrative long-form musical improv. Excellent. Is, all of my favourite things in the same place. Yes, and all of the things that a lot of people are absolutely terrified of. Right, we so. um, but it works quite nicely. Uh, we tend to, I guess, we tend not to get other improv groups. We've had a couple of improv groups, but we we'll tend to get poets or um, stand-ups if they're a bit more unusual and off the wall rather yeah. than just your run-of-the-mill five-minute set at the stand on a Saturday night. Um, or we've had we had a guy who did um, uh, his own one-man improvised ghost stories. <laughs> that was really good. So we did almost like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. We'd be telling this ghost story set in Edinburgh and then as... Um, as he would reach certain climactic points in the story, he'd get people uh, to say, you know, should I go down the alleyway or should I keep going down the road and things like that. <laughs> so that's good. So we'll get guests that kind of, you know, we're introducing them, uh, introducing audiences to, to a new type of performance, uh, improv audiences, and also maybe there's people coming to see the poets and they're coming away having seen some improv. So that's really good. But we also, we do an improvised James Bond show called... Uh, Improvised Bond, the most uh, inspired show name. <laughs> we sat and talked about different ideas for what we should call it and ended up calling it Mimith Coconuts Present Improvised Bond, where again, uh, we'll do the, the theme song at the start. Uh, we'll improvise that as well. We've got a pianist and a saxophonist to wow. do really sexy undercurrents of music and, and kind of the stings between different scenes. Lovely. Really nice. Um, we, uh, we also used to do, do a show called The Improvised Musical, where we get three people out of the audience, I kind of grill them briefly about their life, and then we do uh, scenes from their life with ah, songs as well, yeah, and then get yeah. the audience to vote for their favourite one, and then we re- reprise the big number from whichever their favourite of the three were. Um, although, remembering the first, the, rep- the big song from the first one after you've done two more musicals between them, <laughs> not the easiest thing in the world. If there's one thing that I really wish I could master, it's remembering things when I'm doing improvised musicals. Yeah, and it doesn't get easier. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to break it to you, but no. yeah, we've been doing it for uh, for about five years now, and honestly, still we'll have this point where everyone kind of goes very confidently into the chorus uh, and sings four completely different lines <laughs> at the same time. All variations on the same <laughs> the same general idea. Um, but yeah, there's there's always, and then you, you have to decide, you know, if, are you singing I or are you singing you, even though you're talking about yourself? Does it, you know, what, yeah, what kind of fits there? Do you try and go for a harmony, but then if, if everyone tries to go for the harmony, then no one's singing the melody. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, 
it's tough, but we've got a really good team of musicians, uh, mostly piano, but then uh, I say we've also got saxophone and various other instruments for different shows, um, who are completely able to make us look seamless, right. even if we completely cock up the uh, the chorus. And then people ask if there's a secret to musical improv, and if there is a secret, it's just having really great musicians. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and they, you know, they are absolutely as much a part of the show as we are. Um, and we make sure that's the case. They get paid the same amount. If we make money from a gig, yeah. the same amount goes to the musician and the same amount goes to the whoever's doing the light and sound. Yeah. Because we, we said from day one, um, you can't do the show with just the people on the stage. Um, and when I do do shows without uh, without a piano, even if it's not a musical show, we'll have a piano just underscoring everything. Oh, right, Scenic yeah. background music, and it re you really notice it when it's yeah. not there. Yeah. And they can drive the scene as much. You know, if you're you can yes and the emotion they're giving, and equally there, if you take it down a complete left field turn, and it turns out you know actually this guy was the the villain all along, that's reflected in the music, and the audience are like, wow, this looks yeah. amazing. So yeah, so we've got a really good team of musicians. The other nice thing about Men with Coconuts when we're doing musicals is two two of the four of us are like professionally trained singers. Ah. One does uh, one. I mean, went to like choir school right up through musical theatre training. Uh, one of them does uh, does Rat Pack uh, cover stuff and as well as various kind of lounge singing type gigs. So these two guys with really strong singing voices, and then <laughs> myself and uh, and uh, Will Nami, who's the fourth performer not singers oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> i can generally just about hold a tune will's an incredible freestyle rapper yes but um i, I think a lot of the uh, comedy comes from that as well when you have this beautiful uh, baritone verse from one of either charlie or steve who's who's a really strong singer and then it cuts in with one of us going <laughs> and we're here too <laughs> so yeah so that's uh in men with coconuts which i think oh we do improvise pantomime as well occasionally um and yeah so we've, we've had all these different formations of show ideas that, uh, yeah. but we keep coming back to this just really doing a really solid musical narrative get the audience to shout out three titles vote for the one they want to see and then do a you know half hour to an hour depending on how long we've got left uh of of narrative musical and if you can pull it off it's so impressive you know what i'd really like to do uh when improvising a narrative musical is to do the things that musical do musicals do when you bring back elements from previous songs. Mm. That's quite. We hard. get. I mean, not every show. I mean, but we we do occasionally have that where you kind of there's a reference to a song from earlier yeah. that weaves back in beautifully, oh. and and it looks and that's when you get people coming off and going, "There's no way that wasn't scripted," <laughs> which you know I think you kind of have to take as a compliment. Yes. It's, uh, um, but yeah, it's. It's not something I ever... When I started out doing improv, I hated, hated anything singing, musical. Um, but then I realised that I didn't hate musical improv. I hated specifically musical short-form games. Ah, <laughs> right, okay. So I, I'm, I really... To this day, I'm not a fan of Duran. I'm not a fan of like Irish drinking song, anything like that. Um, because I like the freedom of having no structure. And I mean, you're following along the piano, but the piano's following you. Whereas yeah. if you're doing something where it's that limited i find it's it's very yeah i don't enjoy it nearly as much um but i think that's true of all improv for me i like i like more of a free structureless yeah show and that's another thing that people will come up to us when we do narrative shows and say how much of the do, do you have like oh we have to hit this beat at this point do you have to have this turning point here no generally we'll have um 
we'll have maybe the first two scenes we'll say okay we'll start with a scene with hero and villain we'll then we'll, the second scene will be this and then it will we'll see where it goes from there um which ties nicely into spontaneous sherlock which is the other thing that i'm probably most well known for doing which is uh again it's a, a completely improvised sherlock holmes narrative show usually not a musical although right. we have done shows where it just <laughs> became a musical out of nowhere we uh we had a we had a, a show at fringe two years ago called uh sherlock holmes and the virgin train and this was just after the jeremy corbyn scandal yeah. where he'd claimed there was no seats on the train and then virgin said there were seats and everything so we got uh the title sherlock holmes and the virgin train and we um we decided the whole show was going to be about this little orphan jeremy corbyn uh trying to trying to get the train but then there was all sorts of stuff the train disappeared in the tunnels and all of these <laughs> things going on but in one of the scenes in the middle completely unrelated to anything else we came out um and i think i i think it was me and one of the other guys i can't remember who it was just came out kind of going da, 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 da. <laughs> and then we started singing this song this whole song uh, called the railway boys we're, like, we're the railway boys this gang of like west side story cell gang working on the railway <laughs> And then, uh, and then we thought that was done. And then one of the guys goes, "Oh no, here comes the Welsh Railway Boys." So we came in and we did the whole thing again, but with really bad Welsh accents. And then we're like, "Right now, eight heart, eight part harmony with four people." So we're trying to do two characters each. Um, so that's not a musical show, but it does, um, it does drift into that. Um, so what we do with that is we just get again title from the audience, much in the style of something like Ostentatious, um, where you know get them to write it down pop it in the hat, uh, one of us comes on as Arthur Conan Doyle, we draw our titles out the hat, do a couple of this is what you could have seen, some of my other stories that are, you you know, you might have remembered from uh, from reading the books, although obviously none of them are, we make that very clear when we're handing out the title suggestions, don't put down Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> Um, did you used to get real ones? We do, and even now, even telling people, we do very occasionally get ones in where it actually is the sign of four or studying scarlet or whatever um but you know you get a lot which are plays on the on the actual titles um and then you get ones which are just completely off the wall as well um and then we we do that during the fringe it's uh that's a kind of 50 minute show um but during the year we do that as a 90 minute show with an interval cool so we do a we've got a residency at the monkey barrel comedy club up in edinburgh which uh, just opened um December last year, so it's been open a year now, um, and Thursdays is, is now improv night, and week on week off we do an improvised Sherlock Holmes and an improvised Harry Potter uh, with the title cards from the audience, uh, but because they, you know, they need to make money on bar sales, they don't yeah. want us to just do a, an hour long show and then send yeah, everyone yeah, away, yeah. what we do is we do um, a 90 minute narrative in two halves, uh, and we do then a kind of half hour bonus set, so there can be a second interval if people have enjoyed it, they stick around, they're getting kind of a free, yeah. extra non-themed set, and we'll do maybe a living room or just a complete montage, whatever we, we feel in the mood for. Cool. Um, I did once, we uh, we did once do an impressed uh, Chuckle Vision, <laughs> Chuckle Brothers, because uh, the other, the other, uh, the other two guys in the, in the group has permanent members, and one of the, one of the people who regularly guests, they do this improvised Chuckle Vision show, and so they were like, well, why don't we just do that as our bonus set? to an audience of 100 people, <laughs> a lot of whom were foreign and had no idea what the Chuckle Brothers were. Fair enough. So, it's, uh, you know. But, yeah, we don't... Um, we're all very familiar with the source material for both Sherlock Holmes and Harry Potter, but we're not... We're not... Um, 
religious about it. We do play fast and loose with it. We we reference things which weren't invented, and then, or uh, or make references to other other things. You know, we did a whole one about uh about two brothers running a pizza parlor called Mario and Luigi. So then throughout that, it's how many references to Super Mario Brothers can you get into it yeah. while still keeping it set in eighteen ninety five. So right. you know. Yes. Um, and yeah, so we we play very loosely with the with the source material but we do try and call each other out if, if someone references something that hasn't been invented yeah, yeah you know yeah. if i said I, there was an episode uh, an episode <laughs> a show even where i said something about uh the wireless and someone's like what's a wireless <laughs> and like, that's where i go oh god what is a wireless and you know it, it turned out it was a it was a gramophone with a, an orphan inside just speaking through the pipe, <laughs> singing songs at my request and things, you know. And then you've got the classic improv, if this is true, what else is true? So what other inventions can we reference and then justify? So we're taking a train out of London and saying, oh, free Wi-Fi on the train. And they're, what's Wi-Fi? It's like, oh, I've just got a bunch of orphans bringing me things. <laughs> Photographs of cats uh, running on and off the train at every station. So um, I think we have a lot of... We have a lot of fun with it, but also if you're an actual Sherlock Holmes fan, we have people coming up and being like, oh, I absolutely loved it. Like, the ca- keeping the kind of the character relationships yeah. and the, the, the uh, uh, little little references and nods to the original books, which which you get kind of the, the, the fans, the real kind of yeah. hardcore fans in the crowd. Uh, that's the point where you get the kind of the woo from the back of the room from four people who realize that that character was from you know one of the short stories in this in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes or whatever. Yeah, so. I mean it's really interesting if you're doing uh, something from another world, uh, you know, from a you know Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter. It's the debate of how much of Harry Potter or Sherlock Holmes do you put into your show? You know, do you? Because I think you need to do enough so it feels authentically in that world. Mm, yeah. But if you put too much, do you risk alienating? The people that aren't experts in Harry Potter. Or exactly. Yeah. It's. I think it's about um, making it a completely accessible and entertaining show where someone who has never read or seen a single Sherlock Holmes adaptation can come in and still go away with a smile on their face, saying, "Yeah, that was great." Um, but if you can make those little kind of, it, it's. I think it's kind of like if you watch kids' movies, you know, there's always a few jokes in there for the parents, which are going to go completely over the kid's head. But so long as it's not all jokes that are beyond the kids, it's yeah. still going to be an enjoyable movie for the children. Yeah. And I think it's the same for that. If you can do a show which is completely accessible but has a few jokes for the fans as well, a few little references or nods here or there, um, even just to things where, even if it's not a Sherlock Holmes-themed thing, if you can have another kind of, you know, um, we've, we've referenced the fact that there's fan fiction in a show like John Watson has been writing Sherlock Holmes fan fiction <laughs> during a show and I was like what is that and he's like oh, I'm just writing some stuff and they're like oh is it going to be published no no this one's just for me you know that sort of thing and you know so then you've got like all of the you know the, the, the Tumblr girls in the crowd who are absolutely you know in love with Benedict Cumberbatch and then they get a little nod to the fact that you know yes we're doing this for you and then yeah, that yeah. gets the uh, that gets the cheer um, but without alienating the rest of the crowd so you're not only knowing 
about the Arthur Conan Doyle originals, you're also knowing about you know the uh, TV and film adaptations. Yeah. And but you're also knowing about the periphery thing around that. The the the, the whole fandom. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I think it's it's something that we myself and Will who started it up and we're we're kind of you know the creative directors as well as performing in the group and. Um, and we're responsible if it all goes tits up. <laughs> so our names on the on the uh, on the partnerships. So, um, but we we said that we were like right. We need to. We both we both read the books. Yes. We both watched the BBC show, and we we're like, yeah. But we have to make sure that we are educating ourselves as much as possible on on all of the ex- the extended universe, as it were, because yeah. Sherlock Holmes uh, is the human character who has been portrayed on film more than any other. Really? Second most portrayals on film after Dracula, who's not human. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's been hun- literally hundreds of TV and film adaptations in different languages around the world, so we're never going to be able to watch all of them. No. But I think, you know, as long as you can, you know, watch some of the classic Jeremy Brett stuff, the, the BBC Sherlock adaptation, um, you know, you've got Elementary, the American one, which is their kind of modernised version of it as well, as well as kind of having a a peripheral awareness of the of the deeper fandom without delving into it too much <laughs> you could go mad going down that road <laughs> and what is it that uh, excites you and will about you know taking an established property whether it's bond harry potter or sherlock holmes and improvising in that world what what is so profitable about that I mean, it's profitable because it gets in people who wouldn't come see improv shows, which has always been, a, I think, a challenge world over. Yeah. Unless you're in Chicago, you're not going to have people wandering out and off the street to watch Joe Bloggs' first improv show. Um, so I think um, I think that was a big selling point for us, where we're like, right, we, we let's find an, a solid IP that we can we can work from, and 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 build our own thing, but which has this unique selling point. Yes. I say unique selling point, there's obviously various other improvised Sherlock Holmes shows, <laughs> Harry Potter shows, James Bond shows. I think the year that the year before we did Spontaneous Sherlock at the Fringe for the first time, there was no uh, improvised Sherlock Holmes shows on the Edinburgh Fringe and we were like, right, this is great. Um, and then there was two the year that we did it. There was us and uh, Adventures of the Improvised Sherlock Holmes, which is a bunch of the guys who do racing minds in Oxford. Um, uh, and then there was supposed to be a third one, which I think didn't make it to the actual festival in the end. But was so initially we looked online and there was three improvised Sherlock Holmes shows going to the fringe. But actually, they're very different. You know, like I've guested with the uh, with the other the adventures of the improvised Sherlock Holmes. Oh really? Yeah, I did a show with them in Oxford, and it is a very different show. And there's this kind of family friendly, and ours is a bit more late night, yeah, yeah, yeah. drunk crowds. Um, we did a joint show with you know, about 12 people on stage once, which was great fun, and they were saying exactly that, you know, it's it's actually, it's a very different show, and we're not, we're pointing at different times of day to different yeah. people, so. Um, the other thing that we really liked about kind of taking these existing established worlds is that you do have so much to draw from, um, which is, it's almost a crutch in a way. Um, you know, you've got these two, at least two characters for Sherlock Holmes and you know way more for Harry Potter who are in every single story and so you don't have to come on stage worrying about oh who am I going to be oh what are what's our relationship um for the what I was saying about the kind of structured uh people say how much of the structure is planned the only thing we ever plan for 
um, Sherlock is that the first scene will be something n not related to Holmes and Watson, establishing uh, the mystery. Lovely. Um, yep. You know, they see an, someone seeing a mysterious shadow or uh, someone being murdered or whatever it is. Um, and then scene two is Holmes and Watson, usually at Baker Street. You may have Mrs. Hudson coming in, they may have Lestrade visiting, but it's it's always the, those two. Yeah. And then beyond that point, nothing is planned. We don't. We also don't plan who plays Sherlock and Watson before going on stage. Interesting. We leave the hats on chairs on the stage, and then whoever grabs the hat, that's who's playing Sherlock for that day. We try and make sure it's a good balance and no one's playing it every single time, but um, we don't pre-plan any of that. So, um, But being able to go into that second scene, knowing who you are, what your relationship to your scene partner is, and generally where you are, because I say it's usually Baker Street, although occasionally it will be on the beach or you know down the pub, whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. usually, you know, if if in doubt, you've got that fallback location of where most of the mysteries start is is with Holmes and Watson having a conversation in their flat at Baker Street, and and there being a knock at the door. Yes. Um. So that kind of gives you so much freedom to explore everything else and build your environment and and play off each other and have fun straight away. You don't have to have the platform at the top of the show because you know who you are, but the audience also knows who you are. You don't yeah, need yeah. To, to say, hello, Dr. John Watson, my, <laughs> my assistant. Um, we are here in our home on 221B Baker Street. We can walk on stage, sit down, one of us starts smoking a pipe, the other yes. one starts flicking through a newspaper and people know exactly who we are and what we're doing. Yes. So there's a lot of fun and freedom with that. Um, I can't really speak to improvised Potter because I've not done it yet. Ah. Spontaneous Potter is it's it's again it's I I'm I'm officially you know directing it and and uh, and a major part of it, and I'm on all of the posters and everything. But because it's in Edinburgh and it's on a Thursday night and I've got a job, I actually haven't been able to make it to oh, any no. of the shows yet. <laughs> um, but hopefully you know in the coming year I'm going to try and do a few either take a couple of days off work or work remotely and yeah. and go up on the train with my laptop and work throughout the day, do the show, come back down on the Friday. So, um, But it was one of those things where it's it's baffling that no one else was doing it in the UK already. Yeah. It's uh, it's a bit of a, it's something that we tried a while back doing as part of a, a bigger show, not as its own standalone show. And it, um, it didn't really work. And I think it's because we were trying to make too many, as I say, too many jokes for the Harry Potter fans yeah. in the crowd and, and not making a, a show that was standalone funny on its own. It was relying too much on, oh, that guy's doing a funny voice because he's playing Snape, you know. Yes. So uh, I think I think from chatting to Will and Paul and and the others about how the show's been going, it's been going really well, and and they've managed to find that balance, which is really good. The other thing is that we we pitch it as a it's an improvised Harry Potter fan fiction, not an improvised Harry Potter novel. Ooh. So that gives you a lot more freedom to kind of break canon as That's it were. That's a lovely distinction actually. Yeah, and you can you can set it at any point in this in the schooling system. It doesn't have to be, you know, yes. you don't have to say oh well, you know, is it first year or sixth year, you know, uh, what stage of Voldemort coming back to life is it, you know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It, we you can kind of just throw that out and it's, you know, it's completely standalone stories featuring the characters from the Harry Potter books. Oh, that's lovely. Um, and as the bonus set for that, rather than just doing a montage or whatever you, you might do, we, we have a, on our title suggestion cards, we also have, uh, on the flip side, uh, a, a scene that you'd like to see. Yes. So we can just do a, a series of kind of standalone scenes out of the hat and then one longer narrative as well from a title. Ah, do you weave those scenes into the longer narrative? They, the they can be referenced back to, but they don't have 
to be if that makes sense right. you know the, the way that you know if you again if you if we're doing a mammoth coconut show we'll maybe reference something in the musical that happened in the short form games at the right. in yeah. the first half of the show before the interval um, and that always gets a kind of a good laugh because people have forgotten about that and, yes. and then they remember it and go oh that was funny when that <laughs> happened so uh a lot of the laughs in improv i think are just calling back to stuff that's already happened yeah um, and again, with narrative, tying up a narrative, that's what we always say for the show, is that don't do any plotting whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just play the scenes, play the scenes, do emotional stuff, do relationship stuff, play the game. Um, you know, we, we pimp each other really, really badly because we're, we, we're comfortable, you know, confident yeah, yeah. on stage. And then we teach classes and say, don't do what we do on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Not until you're in a group that's been performing together for, you know, uh, you know five plus years. So what do you like to pimp other people into doing? Oh, and what do they like doing anything. to get you to do? So, uh, so we do a lot of stuff. I mean, lists are always fun, you know. Like, uh, you say, you know, like, if, if Sherlock Holmes says, oh, you know, I wrote a monograph on clouds, and you go, oh, yeah, you know, um, just list me 11 types of clouds. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then you can do that, and then you can uh, later in the show be like, oh, sorry, remind me what the 11 clouds that you said earlier were, and try and get into this. Because making up 11 names of clouds... Not too difficult. Remembering a list of 11 made-up clouds that you did half an hour ago, <laughs> that's difficult. And if they can pull it off, yeah. you get a massive round of applause. And that's what we always say about pimping, is that you're not trying to catch the other person out, you're trying to make them look good. Yes. You know, you're, you're, you're introducing this this air of, uh, of instability, um, and then when they pull it off, it makes them look like, a, like an absolute hero. Um, so, you know, I've been pimped in shows to do... Uh, uh, Shakespearean sonnet in iambic pentameter, um, reading a uh, uh, fun one's always you know uh, oh yeah read the uh, read the family motto in la in Latin please <laughs> and then uh, but then you can always fire that back and you say oh no I tell you what your Latin's better than mine you read it in Latin I'll translate it into English and then again it looks like the person with the Latin has the harder job but actually translating it's harder. <laughs> um, so things like that we pimp each other to do songs obviously because we've got a musician and occasionally it is a musical. Um, and yeah, poems. I say Will is a Will is a freestyle rapper. He yes. does he gigs as a as an impro improv comedy rapper. Yes, I did makes... his workshop at uh, the Birmingham Improv Festival. How did you find it? It was hilarious. So I lived with Will for two years, and it gets old very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I jest, of course, no. But it is living with Will is it, like you go into his bedroom, and he has a whiteboard on his wall, and all his it's just words that rhyme with each other that he's written. You write down a polysyllabic word, and yeah. then and then write as many many words and phrases as he can that rhyme with that. <laughs> Um, and so he does just have that on his wall and he has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks where he just writes down things that rhyme with each other. Yeah. He sits and he'll spend hours and hours trying to find the right beat to go under it and things like that. So he's, he's dedicated to it. But because I, I lived with him for uh, about six months and we used to, this was before he was doing it properly. And we were both kind of saying like, oh, we should get into this. We should try doing like improv freestyle rap. Uh, so we would just like have like rap battles in the flat. And neither of us were very good. <laughs> But then I moved abroad for a year, came back having done no rapping at all with no ability to rap. Anything that I had, any talent I'd gained was gone. And he'd been doing it nonstop for 12 months and went, do you want to do a show together? And I said, no, you can do that as a solo <laughs> And I think he's uh, probably better off for it. But yeah, if I can pimp him in a show to do a, to do a rap, then that always, again, because if people don't know that he's a freestyle rapper, it looks like he's in this real Jeopardy <laughs> hotspot, you know, but actually he's in his element doing yes. it. So, um, yeah, so we really do kind of put each other on the line. Uh, another thing that we really like to do is, uh, is having like masses of characters in one scene. 
when there's only three or four actors on stage. Oh, so yeah. we'll be like, uh, we'll be like, oh, there's 15 men waiting at the door to see you, and then <laughs> two people have to do a line of 15 characters. And again, if we can call that back later in the show and be like, oh, those same 15 men are back, and have you know people running in to the point that um, Fringe, not this year, but 2016, we did. Uh, we had this recurring character in Sherlock, uh, in our spontaneous Sherlock show called Jeremy Hatface, and it was just a, it was just one of us would come on with a bowler hat over our face, um, and any time there was like a run of characters, uh, one of them would be Jeremy Hatface, and then very occasionally he would just turn up as a character in random scenes in shows, and it didn't make sense to anyone unless they'd come to see a show and came back, um, and so we it got to the point at the end of our three week run where where someone would come on as Jeremy Hatface, and there would be about. 15, 20 people in the crowd going, yeah, woo, because they'd seen so many of the shows that they'd picked up on this recurring character who doesn't exist in the Sherlock Holmes canon. He's just a guy with a bowler hat on his face. So that's the kind of thing I get in where I think that's fine as long as it's not, um, yeah. it's seasoning. It's not the it's not the meat of the dish, it's the yeah, seasoning. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so long as you're sprinkling that over the top of a solid narrative with good relationship stuff and... Uh, and callbacks and things, then that's uh, then that's um, that's fine. But if that yep. becomes the bulk of the show, yes, the, that's the couple of times I've come off stage and gone, I wasn't too happy with that. Is because we were getting too caught up with all of that kind of yeah, patting yourself on the back, you know, type of uh, it. It's it's for the performers, not for the audience at that point. And yeah. it's uh, so you have to be careful that you're you're towing that line. No, it's because. Uh, Performing with Bryn in Dr. Tuprov, mm. I'm very much the one for the deep cut. Yeah. And Bryn's always going, eh, I'm not so sure. I'm, oh, no, but, you know, those that have heard of Philip Hinchcliffe will really enjoy it. And like, uh, <laughs> Bryn's going, well, realistically, how many of is that going to be? Can I just do it if Chris Mead is there? Okay, if Chris Mead is there, then you can do it, and that's fine. But otherwise. Yes. So now I'm smuggling in the Easter eggs so that they make sense in the context of what we're doing but they happen to be a line that was used so if you're a fan yes. you get the reference if you're not a fan it's just something I can't yeah you can't it. shoehorn it in but if if it comes up naturally yeah. that's you know yeah. there's going to be someone in the audience who their day was made with that one reference you yeah know, so um yeah i think that's uh, i think that's it i mean you find in sherlock holmes even just and probably for uh, doctor who as well just referencing the title of a of a an episode or a mystery that you know that gets uh, that gets a laugh out of a, a, a small quarter of the audience who were who are, yes yeah generally sitting in the dark at the back because they don't leave, usually leave the house but, uh, yeah those are my people yeah oh yeah mine too don't worry um, but I mean I think most improvisers are are, are um, kind of are geeky about something in that way and I, and I, it's just finding finding other people who have the same the same weird obsessions that you do and so you can do a show together but. Um, yeah, I think I think what I started saying and got off a massive tangent there was uh, was that yeah we never plot we introduce as much stuff as possible and then in the last maybe ten minutes of the show we tie all of those strings together and even if at that point it's really forced of yeah. you know like or, or a real stretch to make that make sense um, that gets a massive round of applause from the audience because it looks like yes. magic yes. it looks like you've you've made all of these unrelated things tie together and I think it's what people like about doing the Harold. Which I don't particularly like going back to the thing about not enjoying structure. Yeah. Uh, I find the Harold far too structured for me, so I, I like much prefer to do a, a, a more free format. But I think a lot of people like the Harold is because you do that kind of gradually bringing things together, and then if you can manage to make everything make sense in that final scene, then that looks like you've you've done the impossible. 
I don't like the Harold um, because my head is not very big and I can't hold that many things <laughs> in it at the same time and listen to the other person and engage emotionally yes and, and find the game of the scene and yeah, yeah it's um yeah no I, I i i agree with you on that i do think it's it's i think it's I, I, harold done well looks amazing yeah but there's a i'd say 90 percent of harolds are not done well if that makes <laughs> sense um and i think the only reason we really do it here is because they do it in america and that's my other issue with the harold is that the only reason that that is the go-to long-form format is because that's what americans do yes um, I'm sure I've just uh, I've just outraged half of your listeners hey, <laughs> with that statement, but outrage is our business. Yeah, but business I I fully good. respect anyone's decision to enjoy the Harold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. If you like the Harold, go for it. If you yes. want to run a Harold night, absolutely go for it. I think that don't but, don't I'm saying don't <laughs> doesn't just don't, don't um, do it. <laughs> this is Stuart talking. Don't do it. They're awful. They're not all awful. But yeah, but I don't I don't enjoy Harold's and I and I don't know why it's everyone's go-to thing and I, and I think it's also thrust on thrust on people too early in the improv learning process I think it tends to be you know long form 101 yeah let's learn the Harold is the first format that you've ever done as a long form and yeah. actually it puts a lot of people off long form improv so a lot of people think they don't like long form because all they've done is a Harold yeah. and they didn't like it or because the other end they've been thrust into a completely free form narrative structure and they couldn't do it but I think there's so many nice long form formats that we should be the teaching room. people. A living room is my favourite. Yeah, absolutely. I love the living room. I love, um, I love the La Ronde, um, where you know every scene one character is the same person from the last scene and one is a new character. Yeah. So you're so every scene has a relationship. It's based on the the La Ronde, the classic French play, which was then made into the Blue Room uh, on the West End. Um, but yeah, so it's this idea of, of it's always one character from the last scene. Yes. So you can see them in a completely new circumstance. And sometimes, um, you know, you'll have two very similar scenes back to back. But then you also have the lovely thing of, you know, this guy who's, a, who's you know, a complete alpha male boss at work yeah. comes home and is actually miserable uh, at home or is actually really introverted and has been, you know, is, you know, really worried about how, how long he can keep it up and things like that. So that's why I like the Laurent. Um we should perhaps explain the living room format. Yes, so the living room, so you've got chairs on the stage. Anytime you're sitting down, you are yourself. You are not a character. You're having a genuine discussion with your fellow improvisers about your real life. You're not, it's not, you're not making up stories. You're genuinely talking. But at any point, something in that discussion inspires you. You stand up and you do a scene uh, on the other side of the stage. So if you're sitting down, you're yourself. If you're standing up, you're a character. That's nice because you can kind of always fall back if you're kind of like, okay, this has run itself dry. You don't have to come up with anything new. You can just sit down and start chatting again. And I love the, um, well, I see, I love any format which involves sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, it's my second favourite thing to do. Lying down is the best, but you don't get to be seen quite as well for that. But also the way in which if you're sitting down and, you, and there's a scene going on, you can edit it just by talking. Yes. And I just think that's really Absolutely. seamless. And I love yeah. That. Well, do you know the uh, do you know the French edit? Yes. Yeah. So I like if you can, I, I almost never do because I always forget it's an option. I should but, pretend I don't. Yeah. So the French edit in a scene where if you've got a, two people on stage, uh, two more people can can walk on from the back, starting up a new conversation and walk between the two people on the stage like they're opening up French windows, French doors, uh, out into the garden, um, and then those two people who are in the scene peel off, and then the uh, the people who've walked in from the back are in there 
new scene now. So that's nice and that kind of like seamless thing, but it's so much easier if you're doing a living room and you're just sitting down. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I've done a lot of two-prov, which you know you were saying you're doing with Bryn, and yeah, that's always tougher finding formats that work for that because you're kind of, you're limited by you have to be able to uh, edit from within a scene. Yes. Anything that requires tag outs is challenging if there's only two of you, um, you know, or, or you know, you can sweep uh, sweep the stage from inside a scene, but uh, yeah. Seems inelegant somehow. Yeah, so we used a two-person Laronde, which is called the zipper, because it's like you've got the, the, the teeth of a zip where you've got one, and then every time you're switching... You're still in the scene, but you're in, one of you is a new character and the other one's the same. It gets very confusing for the people performing that one <laughs> um, as well. Pretty Flower, do you know the Pretty Flower format? No, I'm oh. going to pretend I don't for the benefit <laughs> of the listener. The Pretty Flower, another one that I quite like, like the living room where you can kind of dive in and out of scenes because you've got one central scene, which is the, the head of the flower, and then you, you cut away to do a new scene and then you cut back to that central scene. And that's the petal of the flower. Right. So you're so you're you're doing, uh, you're cutting away and, and doing related or unrelated scenes, but inspired by what's happening in this central scene. Yes. But you've always got that. That's the backbone of your show. Right. Is that if you're ever, if you've ever done a, you know, you've just done a tag run, and, and then you're like, okay, this has run itself out. You cut back to that original scene. Yeah. And that scene doesn't have to be funny. It just has to kind of keep going, and that and that's what's holding it all together. So, how is that different from a deconstruction? Um, because you're generally in a pretty flower, it would usually just be one cutaway scene and then right. back, cutaway scene, back, cutaway scene, back. Whereas so with a deconstruction, you, you can have you, a base scene and then you have maybe three scenes. Yes. And then you go back to the base scene. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so the pretty flower really is, it's like you're drawing a flower with your, your, your cutaway scene is the petal and then you cut back and that's the other side of the petal. So it's, yeah, it's like a kid drawing a flower with those big triangles around, this, around a circle. And it's nice because it's just that kind of, you've got that, and again in deconstruction as well, you've got that backbone to, to kind of fall, fall back on. That's your, that's your safety net if you're thinking, right, well, this isn't going as well as I would like it to go. <laughs> or this is hit a peak. And if we try and keep going with this, it's just going to flatline. Yeah. You've got that to fall back on. So, cool. Yeah. So what format are you doing with other people's children? Other people's children, we are doing a relatively freeform narrative based off a regret from the audience. Ooh, a regret. Yes. That's interesting. So we come to the audience and we ask them for uh, if anyone has uh, something that they regret or a point in their life where they wonder how it would have gone differently if they'd made a different decision. Um, and then we start from, from that and then we, we kind of run with it. When we started out doing it, we were very kind of quite rigidly keeping to like, let's take this person's life and see how it would have been different. But we found that that was limiting us too much. So really, we're just using it as a, as a, as a diving platform, as a jumping off point. Um, so we take that regret and then we either, we run with that and, and, and continue and see that, see that snowball out of control. Or we see how it might have been different if their life, uh, their life might have been different if they'd made a different decision. Um, and people are really, I mean, like, people are more willing to give, like, proper serious regrets than, uh, than we really? expected. We expected a lot of, um, I mean, and we do get a lot of ones where it's people saying, like, oh, I, uh, I, di I studied ancient Greek at school, I wish I studied German instead. Yeah. And, you know, you can have a lot of fun with that. So I, we did a, a, a 
20 minute narrative off that where I uh, I was going to Germ uh, Germany and I was like, oh, yeah, thank God I studied German at school. But then actually everyone in German Germany just wanted to speak Greek instead. <laughs> um, but then we've had some, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, these are things that people have shared. I know this one did come from uh, an improviser in London who said that she, uh, she wet herself in a lift in Paris when she was 16 and then told her boyfriend that she'd had a miscarriage. Uh, I won't name who that was that said that, but Whoa. she shared that at a show. And um, yeah, it's like, so people are willing to divulge these really <laughs> personal things and then we make light of it on stage. Yeah, I really enjoy it uh, when you're taking real experiences from the audience and then playing them on stage because that's a real treat for the person that had that experience. Yes, um, this is this is really why we decided to do it um, because I was saying it's it's that it's it's incredibly personal to that person and it's, it's their show effectively. Yes. But by taking that and just having it as a suggestion, um, you you still have the complete freedom to do whatever you want with it. Yes. I think uh, we it, it was something that I would been really running through my mind trying to think what I wanted to to take in that vein because uh, I think I, I, we saw I think it was Classic Andy did it where uh, they asked for. Uh, a location that you'd walked past but never been into and wondered what was in sight. Ooh, that's so I, really I think nice. it was Classic Andy. If it wasn't Classic Andy, I apologise to whoever it was. But um, but yeah, and again, it's the same thing where it's, it's personal to that one person who gave that suggestion yes. of, you know, this weird boarded up building next to the newsagents in their childhood home, whatever it, it was. But because it was somewhere that they'd never been into, they could do whatever they want inside that location. Yeah. Um, and the person's not going to say, but that's not how it went. yeah. And I think it's the same with the regret, you know, they say if you regret doing something, then we can do a scene where the person doesn't do that, and then we see actually their life, they end up, you know, addicted to heroin in the gutter and be like, well, maybe it was for the best that you decided to do that. You know, it's it's something that we can take that is personal to that person, but it doesn't limit us where you have to follow their life or follow their exact idea of how it would be in their head. And it's interesting if you are the person that shared that, because you do get a perspective and it, you know, however, you're not necessarily it's going to be a psychologically real perspective, but it's interesting getting another perspective on your life. Um, you know, with how much you learn from that, I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting how I'm really interested in the art of getting suggestions from the audience, yeah. and I'm a big fan of getting written suggestions yeah. because that enables people, the sort of people who aren't confident to shout stuff out to get involved absolutely and to have more complex things because if you've got a complex idea which is a got nuances it's much easier to write it down than it is to shout it out yeah getting people to shout stuff out as well i think it, it does you, you're gonna have across an hour show you're gonna have you know maybe five people shouting out suggestions and consistently for everything it's going to be the five, same five people yeah, yeah, yeah. um whereas if you're getting them to write it down every single person has an equal chance to get their yes uh, their voice heard their idea um used um which is what we do with sherlock and potter um and then i say for for coconuts what we do is we will we'll get a handful of suggestions and then get people to cheer for the one that they like the best and then again so you you know you, there's rather than just getting this one suggestion or the other thing which i i always feel really awkward sitting in the audience at the improv show which is where you know they'll uh an improv group will get a suggestion and then they'll kind of go 
anything else? Anything else? <laughs> yes. No, any more? Any advance on that? And it's like, and I know that it's just that they do want to get as many people shouting out as possible, but it, it does, for me as an audience member, as opposed to me as an improviser, yeah. there is that little bit of, oh, was my idea not good? You know? Yes. And then I'm not going to say anything again after that point. So I think by getting a few things and then voting or by getting people to write things down, always you're going to get more of a, uh, a, a more varied show and a more interesting show I think as well so yes when someone when you've taken one suggestion see I'm I'm not wedded to the idea that you need absolutely need to take the first suggestion not at all I don't think that I don't think but I think there there has to be it has to be tactfully done to ask for further suggestions um, and I think even even if that's just at the top of the show saying um we're going to get multiple suggestions for everyone, so shout them all out. The problem is when it's in that moment of that first suggestion and you say, can I get a location? And someone says, Ikea. <laughs> like, okay, I heard Ikea. Anything else? Um, and again, it, as I say, it is getting multiple suggestions and not just going for the first one, which I think is absolutely fine, but you need to do it tactfully. I think there, it yes. has to be done in a way that's clear to the, to the audience that it's not, their suggestions aren't being judged and they aren't being filtered yes. um, or censored in any way. It's just a case of, you know, you have to you have to find a way to do it that that is uh, respectful to your audience and I, keep them on your side. Yeah, I, if I'm watching a group do that, I want to know I'm in safe hands. Yes. I don't want to be worrying about the people doing the yeah. improv, and if they can't confidently get two or three suggestions, I'm like, oh, are they going to be all right? And then I'm worried about them, and then I can't enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think the same, I, even when, when, when people kind of, uh, people seeing them discuss on stage whether they think it's a suitable yeah. suggestion, I'm like, oh, someone just commit, please. <laughs> <laughs> just start the scene now. Yeah, yeah, you, heard, yeah. you heard a bunch of things, just say, I'm going to take this. Don't yes. say, oh, what did you like? Which one did you want to go for? Because yeah, again, yeah. it's the same thing of kind of like, it's picking it apart. And then that person who's shouted out is sitting there going, oh, well, no one wanted to go for my yeah. asparagus suggestion or whatever. Yes, I would much rather they get a suggestion and then someone immediately walks forward and just starts something. Yes. Because then I'm like, oh. The other thing with written suggestions is that um, you can kind of filter out anything that is massively, massively offensive. Which, yes. <laughs> <laughs> although because it's anonymous, it also invites more offensive suggestions perhaps. Because really? I think certainly doing a late night show, yeah, I mean, we've had some very... I mean, I mean we will generally, if, if we're picking out things and someone's written something which uses a racial slur for example which we've had very rarely I, yeah, I will yeah. say that you know if we're doing shows to you know between 100 and 250 people and we've had a handful of these across three years of doing it but I mean we can we can just say oh that one's blank you know chuck it away or oh, I can't read the handwriting or occasionally I will just pull one out and go oh wow that's racist <laughs> I'm not going to say that um, but the thing is because it's not coming from them who shouted it out yes. that person's not sitting there like with their head up in their jumper, you know, crying because they've been called out from the stage because no one knows it was them. Yes. Uh, they, they know, know it was them. them. <laughs> they feel guilty now, but, uh, but they should. So. <laughs> well, yes, sometimes people are, they may not actually be racist, but they're trying to. They're trying very hard to be funny yeah. and. Don't do um, that. <laughs> and people say it when I'm going down the queue handing out pieces of paper and pens and people will say like, say like, oh, is there an age limit on the show? 
And I'm like, no, but I'll tell you now, if you write down something which you think should have an age limit, chances are it will be a less entertaining show. <laughs> it's like, I'll try and discourage people. But we've done it, you know, we've done, uh, we did, uh, there's always ways around it as well. We had a show where it was Sherlock Holmes and the Drunken Slut, and we were like, we don't really want to get into, you know, slut-shaming territory, and particularly because... Let's not was, slam those shuts. It, it was, slam those shuts. Slam that door shut. Um... <laughs> But we didn't, particularly um, when you are a group which is all or predominantly male, you have to be very, very uh, sensitive about that sort of thing. Uh, so what we had was Will came on stage and said, said, oh, I love being an undertaker in South London, a South London undertaker, S-L-U-C, slut. And from that, there we go, scene one, it was very, you know, ham-fisted, but... We, we made it very clear, in this universe, this is what slut means. In 1895 London, it is an acronym for a South London undertaker, and we never have to reference the fact it's a woman of loose morals. Like, <laughs> right. it's, and, that's, and that's it, and it's, it's just about doing that in a way that, you know, is still funny, and people yeah. can be like, laugh at being like, oh, I see what he did there. Yeah. Um, because nobody really wants to see. No one wants to see an hour-long show of, of, sh- of, you know, discussions, of morality discussions over... You know, you know, whether and the other thing there is, you know, like, yeah, I think, you know, women and men should be equally allowed to, to have multiple partners. That's fine. But in 1895, would Sherlock Holmes have thought that? Yeah. And how do you make it clear that it's your character who has that opinion and not your and not your you as an improviser that has that opinion? And it, it's a it's a touchy subject yeah. often with that. And we've had it, you know, if you've got characters in the show who are gay, you know, again. You know, we are. Uh, you know, it's it's a mostly straight cast who um, who have to be very careful that that the fact that two characters are gay is not a punchline. Yes, it is. Yes. It is completely. Um, it's non-essential. It, it, it it's it's a non-issue. It's yeah. it's just happenstance because people are gay. You know, yes. uh, and you're playing these gay characters as if they were any other character, and you're not playing them as a caricature or stereotype. So I think that it's uh, it's something that's uh, 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 a, a delicate issues, and again, you know, it's eighteen ninety five. People would look down on it, but you have to make do- make sure that the people who do look down on it are the bad guys. <laughs> right. Yes. 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 <laughs> and make it abundantly clear that Sherlock Holmes is a forward thinking man uh, living in the wrong age. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, you know we get suggestions which make you go, oh God. What are we going to do with this? But there's always a way to handle it, unless it's a racial slur or a homophobic slur or a gendered slur. I think generally you can get away with pretty much. We did a show which was Sherlock Holmes and the Seven Headed Dildo Monster, you know? But then one of the best shows we've ever done was Sherlock Holmes and the Policeman. Like, it's. <laughs> it's it, you can never tell what's going to be a, a, a good or a bad show from the title. So well, yeah, and what you want is, in many ways, a. Um, kind of a low level title or a kind of a sort of quite bland title that gives you room to build but yeah. if you've already had the punchline of or oh, we've got a seven headed dildo it's like it's hard to heighten that yes perhaps for the best yes yes I can't remember what how that show worked out to be honest we've done enough of them now that there's just there's a this is the thing that we find as well is because so many people come to see the shows during the, fr- the fringe uh, we'll have people come up to us and say, I saw you at Fringe two years ago. It was called Sherlock Holmes and the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that one? And then we have to say, honestly, no, because you saw one show which probably wasn't our best one. <laughs> and we remember maybe two shows from that 
run of 25 yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. and we've done another couple of hundred since then so but how lovely to, oh it's to, to the them. nicest yeah. thing is people coming up and and saying um i saw this show uh, and it was the funniest thing i've ever seen particularly when it's one that we didn't think was very good which <laughs> yeah, happens, yeah, yeah. you know we've come off stage from a show going oh that was terrible Oh, that was, you know, not definitely one of our weakest we've ever done. And we've had people come up in the street two weeks later and say, yeah. I saw that show and it's the funniest thing I saw all month. And yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. great. Like that, you're always going to be your own worst critic, I suppose. I think for all improvisers and probably all performers and artists of any description, that's going to be the case is that you are watching the scene from the inside, not the outside. So it's very difficult to be subjective about it. Yeah. Um, to be objective about it, rather, you 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 have you're by definition you're subjective about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes what we see as mistakes are the bits of the show that made the other performers and the audience laugh the most. Yes. Um, yeah, we had a we had a, a, a scene in one of the shows this fringe where uh, uh, I came, uh, Paul was playing Queen Victoria and I came on as Mycroft Holmes to speak to her, uh, and she thought I was the prime minister. Uh, so she. Uh, by which I mean Paul as an improviser thought I was the Prime Minister yeah, yeah, yeah. and said Prime Minister and I said uh, oh I'm sorry Your Majesty you must have mis- you must have misheard me at Mycroft Holmes and, and rather than uh, than kind of you know starting into this big argument on stage he go- he just goes he goes I'm the fucking Queen my face is on the coins don't you dare talk back to me <laughs> and he came off stage and he's like I'm so sorry I blocked you in that scene I was like no that was the funniest part of the whole show my parents were in the crowd for that one and they came away going saying that was the funniest thing that they like of like any of the shows that they've seen me do that was their favourite moment was Paul just like going off on this massive rant as Queen Victoria and uh, yeah but he'd come off stage going like oh I'm really sorry I felt yeah, like yeah, I yeah. negated you there and I was yeah, like no that was amazing you yeah. It was such a good character choice yes. that it just absolutely worked. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's... Don't know what we're talking about there. I got, yeah. That's improv. Improv. <laughs> cool. Right, okay, so the big, the big final question mm-hmm. is what is your signature move? <laughs> what is the classic move that you do? You save the day, they go... Oh, classic Sam. That's so funny. We always we always talk about this. In Edinburgh, in the Edinburgh scene, we, we'd always talk about improv bingo because everyone has their things that they do on stage and like you can watch a show and go, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, like I think my classic things that I will just fall into doing on stage are um, I'll very often play an old man. That's like my go-to thing is playing an old man. Yeah. Um, and if I don't know what else to do in a scene, I'll come in as an old man. Um, to the extent that I now do a solo ca- improvised character concept piece called Buckley, who's this like sixty-something <laughs> alcoholic who invented the USB, um, <laughs> uh, and so yes, yeah, so that's probably one of my absolute um, go-to things. Uh, another one I'll do is I'll, I'll come on if I feel like I need to add information in a scene. I'll come on, just say it, and then rather than <laughs> organically leaving, I'll just go bye and walk <laughs> off. So I'll come in and be like, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, Sherlock, uh, this letter came from you. I completely forgot to give it to you. I already opened it and read it. This is what it says. Bye. And then just walk away. <laughs> so uh, so that's probably a, a, a kind of a very cliche thing that I'll do. That's um, a really fun thing, though. Oh, it's so much fun to do. Uh, <laughs> or if someone's completely forgotten a major plot point from earlier, I'll come on even like as a ghost and be like, like it's me, your father. Don't forget that key that you found. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Walk away. Um, yeah, 
But so, and the audience loves that sort of information. Oh, absolutely. And it's like because what something I always say is the audience likes to think they're cleverer than you. So it's why naive games and short form shows work so well is because when the audience remembers something and you've forgotten it on stage <laughs> and then someone reminds it on stage, they they think it's great because they're like, I remembered that. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, it kind of validates them a little bit as well. So coming on and doing that, it's just, it's a way because particularly if you've got five minutes left to wrap up a hour and a half narrative and you're like, oh my God, nothing makes sense at this point. And then you come on and be like, remember you smelt sulfur in the basement. <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, and then just kind of writing yourself immediately out of the scene and never referencing it again. Um, is always, yeah, always good fun. And the audience doesn't care. It's like, oh, we've remembered that thing. We'll yeah. deal with it now. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. if it's been brought yeah. on by, you know. And it's always nice if you can do it as a character who was in earlier and be like, yes. burst through the door and be like, you thought I was dead. <laughs> um, but if, sometimes you do just have to come in as a completely un unnamed, unspoken of, never referenced character. Uh, or, you know, yeah, nameless henchman, or, you know, in Sherlock Holmes often it's an orphan, you know, <laughs> Baker Street Irregular is one of the, his network of, of homeless children who just comes in and says, says, oh, Mr. Holmes, this telegraph came for you and I completely forgot to give it to you. There's, there's always that way to kind of work in the, uh, work in the extra information. So that's probably one of my absolute signature moves is come in as a completely unrelated character, give a cr crucial piece of plot information and then just say bye and walk away. <laughs> well, I, I invite everybody to adopt that signature movie. Yeah, absolutely. Share, share the love. <laughs> if you ever need to add information to a scene. There's, there's proper improv ways of doing it, but I just walk in and say, say bye and walk away and never reference it again. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've had a very nice time. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>